0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. How about now? <laughs> uh, my fault. By the way, as you get older, you know physical challenges become you know more significant. Amen. So if you heard that crash during prayer, that was me. And uh, in my defense, I was attempting a very, very difficult maneuver. I was trying to walk out the door, and evidently I misjudged it and uh, ran into the door instead. So, yeah, no, I'm okay. Thanks for your concern. Bless your heart. Thank you. Sweet of you. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, out on the front parkway, we have a lovely uh, new paving stone area out there. Very soon, we'll be sitting up out there with all the donuts and things. And uh, I wanna say thanks to Logan Wood, one of our high school kids. Uh, he is the person that his, his Eagle Scout project and a lot of other people help. But if you see, well, first of all, just let's give him a round of applause. Because I, yeah. Recognizing how difficult it is to improve upon the mulch that is normally there. <laughs> but what a great area for us, and we'll be using that every Sunday morning. So uh, if you don't know who Logan is, find out, and then uh, say thank you to he and the crew that he put together to make that happen. So uh, that was awesome. So I want us to hover a little bit this morning uh, at about 30,000 feet and kind of get a perspective on some things. We're going to talk about righteousness. And in order to talk about righteousness, we have to talk about sin. And everybody loves on a Labor Day weekend to talk about sin. I mean, is, is there anyone not excited about the possibilities in that? And so, uh, Lao Cha is credited with this saying, If there is to be peace among the nations, there must be... If there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace among the nations. If there is to be peace among the nations, there must be peace among the cities. If there is to be peace among the cities, there must be peace among the neighborhoods. If there is to be peace among the neighborhoods, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that progression of thought, or digression of thought, if you want to look at it that way. And with that in mind, I want to just highlight for you at 30,000 feet the 20th century. So, the 20th century begins with industrialization. The the world is changing dramatically. We have moved from a largely agrarian culture around the world, but especially in this country, to an industrialized society. It's happening very rapidly at the turn of the century. And so, people are moving away from the farms and they're moving into cities. In fact, the city structures are not built to sustain as many people as are moving. So, for example, in the early 20th century, one of the great challenges is the food supply. There, are, there is not enough food. Now that people have gathered in one central location, they're no longer growing their own food and eating out of their own stores. Now they have to go buy food. There has to be some change. So if you wonder how Heinz and Birdseye and all of those people sort of came about, it's because the world needed food. There was no way to eat. There was no way to feed the people that were coming to the cities. And we're living in this period of industrialization and and people changing the simple ways in which they lived, and now moving into cities and figuring out much more complex structures of how to provide for their families. And out of that movement, then, we are thrust into the First World War, a devastating war, cruel in so many ways. We barely get through that when we enter the Great Depression and the period of time through the 30s and all the things that are going on within the context of that process. And and while the New Deal is going in and infrastructure and and initiatives are being, you know, put in place in order to pull the country out of the deep economic depression, on the rise in Europe are the powers of Germany and Italy and in Japan. And at the end of that decade, of that third, fourth decade of the 20th century, we enter into the second world world. War. And the 40s become this very interesting time in our culture, a tragic war taking place, obviously, but also the country had never pooled together in such a powerful way. There was one cause and there was equal sacrifice. People were sacrificing at every level of humanity in order to survive those years. And then we moved into the 50s. The war over, there was a time of affluence. America was on the rise. People were buying homes in unprecedented numbers. There were plenty of jobs. There was economic growth. There was this period of kind of the bust of the country. In fact, we live in it. So many of the communities that are surrounding us, Long Beach, Burbank, they grew up around the war effort, and homes were built by the thousands, and families were able to purchase homes and move in, and this time of great affluence. And as often happens in a period of great affluence, then the 60s come and we have a social rebellion. And basically what we are told now, the rise of rationalism is happening and the sciences are feeding us all kinds of the 60s. You guys remember? Not all of you do, but some of you do. We were heading for the moon. 1960, John Kennedy is elected president and he challenges this culture, this world. and says, by the end of this decade... We will put a person on the moon and the focus of everyone to say we're going somewhere, we're doing something. It's about the sciences. It was in the middle of the 60s that the God is dead movement began. We now know everything we need to know about how the world works. We no longer need a faith to explain the mystery of the universe. God is dead. Not necessary. And the 60s reflected that mentality. There was a social rebellion. All the old forms of oppression, as we talked about it in the 60s, all the old rules of faith and Christianity and morality and, you know, all of that stuff was thrown aside. It was cast aside into a decade of free love and free drugs, which lingered into the hangover of the 70s, into the boom of the 80s, and then the economic collapse in the late 80s. And we were promised, way back there in that social movement, we were promised that if we threw off the oppression of morality, the idea of morality, and the idea of righteousness, that, that we would be free to become. And the side thing happened, and that was once you didn't need God, and you didn't need that higher power, and you weren't looking up, you started looking in, and secular humanism started to rise in our culture, meaning it's all right here. What do I want? What do I think? What's the meaning of life? The existential question How do I make life meaningful? I have to figure it out. I have to decide what's meaningful and go do it. There is no defined meaningful life anymore. And we were promised, we were promised in the culture that if we throw off these restraints and we focus on just what we want, we'll be happier and better. The world will be better. Everything will work better. How's that experiment going? And instead of stopping and going, I'm not sure that the answer is in here, and I'm not sure we should have thrown off all that. Now, let's be honest. There were a lot of things going on in the 50s and 60s and 70s that needed to be fixed. I mean, you can't look back at it and go, well, we had it figured out socially, culturally, because we didn't. There were all kinds of things that needed attention and needed to be addressed. And I'll be honest. I grew up in the church, but we didn't have a very good concept of sin Anybody else grow up like that? Really bad. Concept. In fact, I grew up believing that sin was anything worse than or anything less than getting it perfect. Therefore, I grew up with a great deal of guilt and shame. I've told you this story before. But as a, as a teenager, if there was an altar call, altar call that's, they used to have altars in churches like these kneeling benches down front. And then at the end of the service, they would say, anybody want to come and pray? And then you would come and they would linger and they would sing just as I am without one plea, but that my blood was shed for me. (laughs) And then you would be invited to come and pray and people would gather around you and pray. Church went on forever, just let me tell you. (laughs) Because if they did an altar call, sometimes nobody would come. So they would change songs. (laughs) uh, Okay, this one's not inducing the guilt we need. Let's sing another one. How about this one, pass me not, O oh gentle savior. You know. And then if you went down to the altar, then they had to stop afterwards and everybody had to testify. So then they all went back to your seats and you're like, we're never, ever leaving. We're never going home, ever. And People would talk about what happened to him, and he would be like, okay, great. So anytime there was an altar call, I would go because my concept of sin was such that I was always guilty. I was never perfect. And I was always waiting. And I was told this, if you just surrender your life to God, you'll get perfect. Just let it go. I remember one Sunday night, I've told you the story before. In my church, altar call, went down. The saints gathered. They prayed over me. One well-meaning man said these words out loud. God, please help him to mean it this time. Now, had I known then what I know now, I would have turned around and said to him, listen, this is not my problem. It's your whacked out definition of sin that's causing the issues. And if you clean it up, I'll be OK. But I didn't know. So there's things that needed to be changed. And even today, if we talk about righteousness and sin, we're like, uh. so let me ask you this question. How do we heal the world? How do we go about, if tomorrow you were given the power to do something, to make some decisions, what would it be that you would emphasize? How would you go about changing the culture in such a way that it would be healing? Because that's pretty important. It turns out as Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, first 19 verses, we love it. Blessed are. By the way. Two weeks ago, we talked about the blessedness, oh, the blessedness of, and we talked about the phrase, about Jesus, what Jesus is saying, and he's using a colloquial phrase, and the colloquial phrase he's using is, participating in the joy of the gods are those. So when all the images went up on the screen and the points went up on the screen, it said, participating in the joy of the gods, and it was a lower G, God, and I got emails saying, are we a pluralistic church now? No. No we are quoting and because I ran out of time I didn't have time to develop all of that and I thought everyone would just go oh yeah it's okay but it's not (laughs) so Jesus was only saying participating in the joy of the God capital G but the colloquial phrase was participating in the joy of the gods because it belonged to the larger culture and he was using it to bring its specific emphasis for our Judeo-Christian tradition everybody okay with that now all right good so it's been sweet Blessed are we that mourn. Blessed are we that are poor in spirit. Blessed are we that are the peacemakers. Blessed, 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 blessed. We love it. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. I mean, so far, we love this sermon. And then he gets to verse 20, and he does a little pivot. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot participate in the kingdom of heaven. And we're all like, yeah, those Pharisees are just... Yeah! But what we don't know is he's drawing us in. And his next words are not going to be about the Pharisees. They're going to be about you and me. And he's going to now define what does righteousness look like. We know this. We know that the summation of this righteousness he's about to define is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And it turns out that if we really wanted to understand sin and righteousness, then, then we could start right here. Here's what's healthy for your inner world. Love God with all your heart. Why is that healthy for your inner world? Well, let's explore it. It's healthy for your inner world because it allows you to not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, I know none of you nice people need that, but we know people who do. Amen? Because some people believe they're the top of the food chain. They have risen to a point that what they think, what comes out of their mouths, is golden. It's just beautiful golden wisdom and depth, and, we, and you can feel it when they're speaking. Mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. I mean, we don't even argue with them anymore, do we? We just go, yeah, whatever. And it turns out that if we want a healthy inner world, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. How do you heal the world? Well, I'm not the top of the food chain. Just because it's in my brain doesn't mean it's right. I don't need to take on arrogance I don't need to talk down to other people it turns out if I love you know the Jews wear a yarmulke on top of their head to remind them that there is something above them that they're not the final decision maker that there is accountability over the top that it matters what we say it matters what we think it matters that we live in humility. I don't want my inner world to get whacked out. And when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, he's saying, don't let your inner world get whacked out. Don't think of yourself, Mara. You do not have all the answers in here contrary to secular humanism. And we all have lived long enough to know that. We know it. But it also allows us to not think too little of ourselves. Because it turns out you are a child of the living God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he made you in all your uniqueness. I wish I'd understand this much earlier in my life. I'm not sure still that I fully embrace the truth of it. I still believe that God looks at me and he goes, Really? (laughs) I mean, I still think that somehow God made me, created me in so many ways to think like I think and do like I do. But I find myself talking sometimes and thinking, boy... This must be horribly painful for people. Some of it is the expression on your faces as I talk now, but and I remember as a as a college freshman, I remember, you know, going to college and attending my first classes, getting ready for ministry. And of course, those first years, you know, they're pretty, you know, sketchy survey classes that everybody's kind of taken together. And but but in college we had a club a club for people going into ministry called the timothean society it's as exciting as it sounds <laughs> and i went to the first meeting my fall semester my freshman year and i walked in the room and i looked around and i went "Well, these are not my people and i came away going eh, really into a crisis and uh, you know just saying to god I am not as spiritual as those people. They—they they are. In fact, you may have thought that as the pastor of this church, you thought, you know, I wish the pastor was a little more spiritual. Oh, yes. <laughs> and went into this crisis because I just didn't feel as spiritual as those people. I mean, I sat in that room, and they would say, "How you doing?" Oh, I've been praying, and God's been blessing me, leading me every step of the way. And I'd be like, uh. Well, I'm just trying to get up on time and get to class. I'm looking for a job. My car payment's past due. I just never felt that same level of, you know, whatever that was. And, And probably for about the first three or four months of school, I'm like, I don't know if I can do this for a living. I don't know if I can become this thing. And somewhere along the way, God really spoke to me and said, you know, I called you. So why don't you just go be yourself? And then let me use you to do whatever it is you're going to do. So I've never fit in as a minister. I don't really, you know, fit in very well. But you're great. Thank you. I'm not having a crisis. I'm just... <laughs> there's a turn here coming. I bet there are people in this room Then you feel that way. Why did God make me like this? Why do I think like this? Why do I do this? And I have this image in my head that God brings all of these diverse, wonderful personalities into the church. And then we preach over them for a long time. And then they all walk out the door going, I love God. I love God. And God must throw up his hands and go, they ruined another batch. I keep sending them diversity and personality and depth and craziness and weirdness. And they keep whitewashing them all and sending them out the other side. Boring, dull, vanilla. Amen? Amen. And so loving God with all of our heart not only helps us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but also to not think less of ourselves than we ought. God made you doesn't mean we don't are always a work in progress and we're always inviting him to mold us and shape us. But the fact is, God made you very uniquely. You have gifts no one else has. You have abilities. You, you work within the context of the body, whether it's the body and community and the place of faith or the context of the body within the life of your home and family. You have a place. You have something to contribute. You have something to offer that is uniquely in you that no one else can offer. And to call that out and to say, bring it. We need it. Don't hide it. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Going to hide it. Going to be it. And so it turns out that loving God helps our inner world be balanced. And we need that. Amen? Amen? And then we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, this turns out to be really important. Because not only is our inner world getting fixed, but now our relational world is getting fixed. And we're loving people. And what he's going to describe is, now he begins to unpack this, is to say, listen, you got to treat other people well. Not just a little bit well, but uniquely well. Like uniquely well in the world, like no one else in the world should treat others better than those who call themselves by the name of Christ. Like it should be an epidemic. Like people should walk in and qualitatively feel a difference because of the way we treat other people. I mean, it should be, like, overwhelmingly powerful. And so he goes into a list. We don't treat them with anger. We don't treat them with contempt. We don't cheat. We don't lie. We don't steal. We, don't we have a deep sort of love for each other and other human beings because that's what righteousness is. Righteousness is what allows us to live in healthy relationship with God so our inner world is whole and it allows us to have a healthy relationship with each other so that our outer world is whole. How do you heal the world? If you want peace among the nations, you have peace in the... If you want peace among the world, you have peace in the nations. In nations, in the cities, in the cities, in the neighborhoods, in the neighborhoods, in the home. In the home, it's in the heart. That's what righteousness is. Therefore, what is sin? Sin is anything that interferes with our love for God. It's anything that breaks this in an unhealthy way. Where now, we and what happens in our culture is we go, there's no God, so I'm going to turn inside. And then when we turn inside, we find that unfulfilling. Can I get an amen from the older folks who have turned inside and tried it? Because we've done it. We're like, okay, forget it. I'm casting off restraint. I'm going out on my own. And then we go, you know, that didn't work out that well. And the logic would go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to that other way. I'm going to quit worshiping myself, I'm going to quit calling attention to my own selfish stuff, and I'm going to look up, because that's, that's not what we do, is it? You know what? I probably didn't go far enough. The reason I'm unhappy is because I need more self-indulgence, not less. I'm still holding back. And now we start to get byproducts, because now we start to feel shame, and we become dysfunctional. We become dysfunctional in our our world. And then we become dysfunctional in our relational world. And if we just hovered at 30,000 feet and I said, how's the world working with this sort of elevating self to the peak in the pinnacle? Yes. Not very well. We're not healthier. We're not healthier at any level in the world and in our story. Now, if you're keeping up, what we call all of that is exegesis. <laughs> we are setting context so that now you can hear the words, that Jesus speaks and understand how he speaks them. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with their brother or their sister, (sighs) This was such a sweet sermon up to this point. Yes. We'll be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your sister and brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it. While you're still on the way, together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison, and I tell you, you'll not get out until you paid the last penny. What Jesus is saying is, I know you think you're right. I know you think you're right enough to go to court, but you might want to settle it on the way, because you might get there and find out, whoop, whoop, you were wrong. You might end up in jail. And then you might be stuck there for a while. So maybe you want to be careful that you always think you're right. Settle matters quickly, do it while you're still together on the way, da-da-da-da. Truly, I tell you, you'll not get out till you pay the last penny. You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Skipping ahead to verse 38. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be... The children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Are not the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. It was such a nice sermon up to this point. And now we get into these hard sayings. So what does he... Really, talking about? Well, he, he's talking about righteousness and sin. And he's talking about what it means to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, as we break it down, he says you're going to have to push away a couple of things and you're going to have to embrace some other things. So, he says, number one, you're going to have to push away anger. You've heard it said, do not kill, but I say, don't be angry with each other. Ooh. Really? Anger is my best thing. <laughs> Amen? I mean, our culture is excellent at anger and outrage. It's like we have become so desensitized that unless there is a sufficient level of anger and outrage, we don't really listen. And we're pretty sure nobody listens to us. In the book, Sky Jathani says, as a pastor who preaches sermons through this very tumultuous season in which we've been in as a culture... It is not uncommon for me to get an email that says, Pastor, I don't understand why you are not more angry. I don't understand why you are not more outraged. Well, because anger is something we are supposed to push away from in the life of the kingdom of God. That, in fact, we are told that what it means to love God with all your heart and our neighbor as self, is to not only not kill them, but to not be angry. (laughs) And that Jesus pulls these two things into the same hemisphere is startling to us. Because we are not angry, we're just full of righteous indignation. By the way, you do know that (laughs) post-Scripture, like after this had been in circulation for a number of decades, This passage got edited. And it was a phrase added. And do not be angry with your brother or sister without cause. Yeah, it got added. And you know why it got added? Because we love being angry. It's our best thing. We do it incredibly well. And we got to push away from anger. In the book, Giustani writes these words in regard to anger. In the right hands... With the right training and from the right heart, anger could be wielded righteously. Yet in most cases, it's only a destructive force. I rarely see all things clearly. And a weapon as dangerous as anger is best deployed only by those with perfect vision. I trust Jesus to use anger righteously. I don't trust myself. I have misfired too many times and I have hurt too many people with my anger. And I cannot love God with all my heart and my neighbor as myself and excuse myself for hurting people with anger when I know because of this relationship that I do not have perfect vision. I do not. I am not the top of the feud chain. My opinion is not the final opinion. It matters. Number two, we push away contempt. I say don't say raka to someone. Well, raka is undefinable. If you've raised a teenager, you've probably experienced raka. It is actually a sound and a facial expression. (laughs) Amen? You know, you just know that you're not being held in high esteem for whatever it was that you said. Usually an eye roll. <laughs> Holding others in contempt. Not only are you not supposed to be angry, but anger, and he's not switching subjects. Don't kill, but I say don't even be angry. And by the way, don't, hold other, don't let your anger then turn into contempt for others. Are we defining our culture or not? What's going on in our culture? This is what we do. We are angry and we hold others in contempt right now. You can talk about any subject in our culture and you will find one group holding the other group in contempt. Loathing them. Outraged. Angry. Ultimatums. These people are ruining the world. They're going to destroy the world. Those people are destroying the world. And the church has been divided in that way. Caught up in this. In the book Sky... Jathani quotes a prominent evangelical leader who's doing an interview on a national news broadcast. And in the news broadcast, the interviewer asks the leader, doesn't the scripture say, turn the other cheek? And the evangelical leader says, yes, but I only have two cheeks. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think what he meant is, if you want to have the kingdom of heaven alive on earth... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as your self. We're going to have to push away anger and push away contempt. How do you heal the world? Righteousness. What is righteousness? <laughs> well, sin is anything that takes us away from loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself. That's what sin is. It's what breaks the relational connection. And it's what breaks the relational connection. And if you haven't read the book, you might want to know this. This book is all about one thing. Relationship. What is unique about this story? It's about a God who in relationship seeks his creation. It's the only religion in the world that has this story. The others have this story. I'm going to be righteous and find my way up to God. This God comes down to find us. Because why? He wants to be in relationship, relationship, relationship Relationship. all the time. We're going to have to embrace some things. Everybody doing okay? All right. We're going to go quick. We got to embrace forgiveness. We got to be people who forgive. Are we? If we want to do this loving each other, we got to forgive. We got to forgive the real thing. We got to forgive. We got to let it go. We got to move on we got to forgive. We have to embrace the power of forgiveness. First John 4.20 Whoever claims to love God but hates their brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Jesus very specifically in this passage is going to say, listen, don't claim that you love God when you got something at your brother or sister. Leave your gift at the altar and go and make it right. Love each other like that. Forgive each other like that. It's not normal. You do know this isn't normal this isn't normal. How do you heal the world? Righteousness. Right relationship with God, right relationship with each other. Number four, embrace goodness. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Better to lose one part. If your right hand, chop it off. We're all like, yeah, this is archaic. He's just saying, don't appear to be good. Go ahead and be good. You know, the Pharisees, they look whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside they're full of dead people's bones. Don't be like that. Go ahead and let the goodness... Don't just do good. Be good. Be becoming good. I don't know. I was told that if I just gave it to God, I'd be good. It turns out it's a work in progress. That God is working on me all the time. And about the time I think I got some things worked out, I run into a door. And... (laughs) And I find out I have all kinds of imperfections that need to be worked on. Amen? Amen. And isn't it funny? You know, when do you peak? Like 21? I don't know. You don't know it at the time, but you can look back and go, No, it all started to fall apart about 20, 23, 24. You know, I didn't notice till I was 40. But at 40, everything quit working. You know, when was I at my... Because I solved some problems... And now I keep getting more. I get more problems as I get. I'm a work in progress. I'm becoming. Embrace goodness. Embrace grace. Go ahead and embrace. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other. I'm just telling you. Give people better than they deserve. Amen. Amen. Give them better than they deserve. We ought to. We ought to. We ought to. Finally, not only do we embrace forgiveness and goodness and grace, but we embrace tough love. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy. Are we people of tough love? Or have we decided who's good and who's not? Have we decided who we should love and who we shouldn't love? The early church, in hearing this stuff, had never heard such things. Oh, it's buried in the Old Testament law, and the Pharisees had sort of trumped up a system by which, you know, we loved God with all our heart. We loved our neighbor. But there was no actual love going on, not for God and not for each other. Are we that different? And when Jesus came and he began to teach this, and then people began to live it, guess what happened? People flooded into the church. And they flooded into the church because they desired to be a part of a community like that. How do you heal the world? Righteousness. If you want peace in the nations, you have peace in the cities. If you want peace in the cities, you have peace in the neighborhoods. And if you want peace in the neighborhoods, you'll have to have peace in the home. And if you want peace in the home, you'll have to find peace in your heart. God, would you help us? As we come to this closing moment, we think about your call for us to be seriously righteous. Not self-righteous, not pompous, not conceited, but seriously righteous. We come to this moment in which we participate in the Lord's Supper in a recognition that it's not our own righteousness that we celebrate or think about. It's the righteousness of Christ which washes over us and cleanses us and forgives us one more time and gives us grace one more time. that pushes away anger and contempt and gives us forgiveness and goodness and grace and tough love. And then you look at your followers and say, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Would you challenge us? Would you speak to us? Maybe today as we've talked, your Holy Spirit is spoken in some ways about some attitudes and a spirit that we simply need to surrender we've made ourselves the center of the universe and it's not doing the work we were promised and it's not serving us well and so in this moment in this simple expression we're surrendering to you we're inviting you to do your work You don't need to be a member of this congregation to participate, just that you've confessed your sins and received forgiveness. If you've never prayed a prayer like that, we're going to pray one together. I invite you to go ahead and take out the elements and prepare them. Whether you're here in the room or at home, God, we invite you into this moment. And in preparing our hearts, we confess to you our sins. We seek your righteousness, as defined by you, to love you with all of our heart, and to allow that to balance our inner world, and to love our neighbor as our self. And we believe that in pursuing these two things with all of our heart, there is a powerful healing that can take place. So we confess And I pray now in these moments that you would apportion grace to every person as they have need. We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said together, Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died. blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. And now, God, in this closing moment, would you go with us from this place? Would you allow these words to linger in our hearts? Would you allow the powerful words of the Sermon on the Mount to speak and lead and challenge us. All our lives, you have been faithful. All our lives, you have been so, so good. And we give you praise and we give you honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.